Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I'll tell a little bit about me, why I started the podcast, and then I'm really excited to interview Arachi today. So I'm a, a Black American. I'm half Jamaican American and Indigenous and African American. My mother is from Jamaica. Her, she's a teacher, a retired teacher. My grandmother was a retired teacher also. She taught in Jamaica for 20 years and then in New York for 20 years. And then my great-grandmother was a teacher in Jamaica and she was the daughter of an Irish woman and a black man. And then my dad, he, um, he passed away in 2009, actually on Memorial Day weekend, which just passed. He was a veteran and he, he was a psychologist and my parents met in graduate school. And so I started this podcast, Black American COVID, during Black History Month uh, 2022, because as the pandemic was going on and more variants of COVID were coming up, I wanted to memorialize the lives of people who sadly passed away during the pandemic. And I also wanted to hear the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. I started reading Zora Neale Hurston's plays again, and I saw that she she was she went to Harlem and she would interview Black Americans, and she was an anthropologist. So I thought if she were alive today, she would probably interview Black Americans. So she's my inspiration, and so I'm really excited today to interview. Arachi, so thank you. And please tell us your name, where you're from, and where do you live now? Okay, uh, thank you, uh, Sonia. Uh, my name is Arachi May Brown. My mother uh, was born in 1930 down in uh, Orangeburg, South Carolina. She was a foundational Black American. Uh, her mother's name was Zula Weidman. I don't know her, her maiden name, but my grandfather was called George Weidman. Um, my mother is one of the nine children from Zula, uh, from Zula Weidman. Uh, down south during the time, it was during the Depression, she was born. She was born the seventh child. She was born with a veil. And they said children born with a veil are apt to see things spiritually, et cetera. Um, also during that time, the Ku Klux Klan has been rampaging through the South, as we all know as Black Americans, uh, that during slavery time, after the emancipation and freedom was won, supposedly, uh, the next step was to have the people continue to subjugate us, uh, subjugate the Black Americans. And that time, my mother's uh, family owned a, a large, huge amount of land in Orangeburg, South Carolina, and they have continually protected the land from the KKK uh, by force that it was any means necessary. But they managed to kill my one of my mother's brother, but not without retaliation. All right, fast forward. <clears throat> uh, my mother's 14 years old. She came. She came up to New York to go to nursing school. Uh, on the west side, yeah, the west side of Harlem at that time, because Harlem was during the Renaissance. We had all the uh, very important people there. And um, unbeknownst to her, my father, who was born in Jamaica, West Indies, uh, 
from the Paris of St. Anne's and Constantine Spring. He was one of the many sons of the, uh, the matriarch. Uh, the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Uncle Abner uh, Brown. He was from Cork, Ireland. And that's how he did it. I was during the time of slavery, and he managed to have plantations. But also, he had owned all the waterworks. He had 25 sons and three daughters. My father was one of the children from one of those second generation coming. But anyway, my father came here to New York City as a merchant seaman. He was a carpenter. He met my mother at the Savoy Boy Room, the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. And at that time, you know, blacks. Black people, they danced, you know, they were very uh, assimilating, they owned property, they, they went to professional schools. So my father met my mother while she was going to school. And there's a lot of stories behind that. But in meanwhile, I was born in 51 uh, in Jamaica, Queens. And my, my father um, bought a house and um, my mother, my father carpet built the house and brought my grandmother up. All right, so that's part of my heritage. Uh, so I'm a financial Black American. Thank you. <laughs> I can go on, but that's what I can <laughs> Yeah, no, such a rich history. It's so good to hear. And I've, this is the first time I've heard the phrase foundational American. I really well, like that. That's, well, that's what we are now, because we are, they see the problem they're having, and I guess, and I'm, I'm going to talk racism, because it is a form of, um, uh, how you say, uh, continually keeping the black race from rising. Every time we try to build, they destroy because of uh, their, um, you know, their, their, their thirst for conquest, basically, blood, death. And we won't go into history of slavery. But meanwhile, we are qualified national black Americans because we are the descendants of the African slaves that were brought here early in the 1600s. And African have been here even before then. So we are the true indigenous people. That's, we have a culture because we're ripped from the homeland and brought to, brought to this country and many other places, Caribbean across the world, and stripped of our identity, our culture, and then forced to learn another religion on the pain of death, a sort of control. And throughout all from the last five, 600 years, those um, black foundational American who are the original indigenous people that built this country. Wall Street was not just Wall Street. Wall Street was literally woods, trees that were chopped down by the African-Americans. White men don't work. That's why they have the slaves. They didn't have the technologies to use human flesh and sweat to build this country they call theirs. And that was even before America became America. And so when we say foundational Black Americans, we say the people who are the descendants of those people who are ripped and stole, ripped the cultures from their country and try to be reprogrammed for the use of other people. And those are the people of supremacy. And I, and I, wonder, I want to reiterate one thing. Those white, and I say white, Caucasian, because during that time of their colonialism, um, the sun never sets on the empire from Britain, Spain, Portugal, the Dutch, everyone had their hand in it because it was an economical resource that was profitable for them and shame on the, the, the people who they enslaved. So 
that's when I say financial black American, be proud because you are basically maroons in uh, South Carolina, well, even past South Carolina, going down to Florida, the Samoan, the Seminoles, they were all black. The Indians, they were black. And the government could not kill them out. So they made a treaty that they would not bother them as long as they wouldn't bother the, the white folks that were in Florida. So they called them maroons. And there will be a movie coming out uh, made uh, by um, the filmmaker called Tyreek Mashi. And I'm quite sure you probably heard of him. Um, the Hidden Colors, he did many movies, but he's doing a documentary about this. So these are not just words, hollow word salad, these are facts. So we should be proud to know that we are foundational Black America. And then no one else can say, well, you know, well, we want this land. No, no, no. When we want reparation, reparations for all those atrocities done to us, everyone gets reparations, the Asian, uh, you name it, the, 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 the Jewish people. As soon as something happened to them, they got hate crimes against for anyone who touched those people. But when it comes to us, they slaughter, they kill us systematically. And what do they, what do, they do for us? Give us holidays or a hip hop day. Come on. We want, we want to get paid for the suffering that they made their money off of. The bank, Citibank, even Harvard University has black slaves that they still, their bodies still in there that they use to build Harvard and all the other Ivy League universities. You, know, they, you can check it out. This information is now coming to light, but this is the secret. All the banks, the, the Wall Street, everyone, they use the black, use our people for their monetary gains. And then they still do, they want to deprive us and fill their jails with our brothers and sisters uh-huh. to make dollars. So, sorry, <laughs> I get on my table. Thank you for the history. And yeah, and you're contextualizing who we are today and how America has wronged us and has not made the reparations. So thank you for that reminder. And insult us. Insult us. The president comes insult us like, oh, we're so sad. But she turns against him. Now they got killers killing their own people. You see? They are the Frankenstein, basically. They're trying to make Black people their monsters, but it's turning on them. So anyway, let me stop. Go on, Sonia. Thank you. (laughs) No, I I just love how knowledgeable you are about our history and our people. And and I look forward... Oh, I should say how we met. So we met through the Zip Code Memory Project. One of my classmates at City College, Leah, she and I were getting our MFAs in creative writing, and she saw that I was doing this oral history project, and she told me she was also doing an oral history project of people, mm-hmm. um, memorializing people who passed during the pandemic, and you were a part yeah. of it. How did you meet Leah, get involved? All right. I was invited by my professor, well, my ex-professor, who you know is Eve, from Lehman College. I'm a graduate from Lehman College. And I was taking a class on journalism, which I've done um, a piece on uh, GMO before. Now everything's in GMO because I was horrified by the the prospect of them giving us this uh, artificial food. And they, in Africa, they were banning America sending stuff over there. And then I think that was in 19, early 90s. And now look at this, everything is GMO. There's nothing real. So I uh, took a journalism course, and then I met Eve through camera lighting because uh, I, I was curious about it. I was a photo- photographer, but I wanted to make movies. And um, he says, oh, not anybody can make movies. Well, when you say I can't do something, well, I did it. I made a couple of movies. <laughs> and not only that, I'm, uh, I, I write plays, screenplays. I put on plays that uh, Lehman has shown. Uh, one's called The Dialogue with the Devil. So I wanted to use the artistic um, 
I was discovering my artistic talent. So, so Eve um, showed me this um, flyer about Zip Code Project. There was no information about it, but they had a pretense of what they wanted to do, and it was social justice. So that whet my appetite. And I thought maybe there'd be a certificate or something to show that I completed the work. We had no ideas, and that's how I got involved. Oh, and I'm so glad you did and that we were able to meet and do such meaningful work. And so now I'm really looking forward to hear your experience living during the pandemic. Cause I think, was it um, Eason said that you were a nurse, which I didn't realize. Is that correct? Yes, I, uh, I graduated, I got my nursing from Midtown Manhattan, uh, Board of Education for Nursing. This was like back in 91, just before, just when the World Trade Building exploded, I was going to class. But anyway, make a long story short. Yes, I uh, got my um, certificate as a nurse, but I'm practicing because I don't have my license. I was studying to get my license. And so I worked, uh, I got a job at uh, Mount, at uh, that time it was Roosevelt Hospital. And um, they, you know, at the postpartum and my boss, she was a Jewish woman, Meryl, and she took a liking to me. And so I've been working here and I raised my kids um uh, through this job but the main reason why i took on the employment general uh i had many other employments but the fact that the union would send me to school that was my purpose to take the union and that's what i did i used their hours to send my educate myself got my associate my bachelor's and i learned all these skills for them but um during the pandemic Again, I'm, I'm very well skilled. I can adapt to any um, department. In this particular case, well, let's put it, let's fast, let's backtrack. When the, the pandemic came, the uh, signs of we, pandemic was in the air. Not every, me and my coworkers, we didn't believe it because, you know, in the hospital, you have so many other diseases. You have flesh-eating disease, you got MRSA, you get Amy, there's tuberculosis. There's so much disease that if you go in the room, you can catch it, you have problems. But so this was like in anything else. But then as the months went by and then I'm tr now everyone's scared, you know, like I, I, I don't scare easy, put it this way, because it has to be something come up in front of my face to make me really terrify me. But I took it with a grain of salt. But then as I see my coworkers like dropping, one of my um, friends, Robin, she was, she texted, she was in hospital, in the same hospital, and she was barely hanging on. And I'm like, wow. So that, even that didn't disturb me. So anyway, I worked in all these units, uh, in, uh, ICU, intensive care. And, but now as the year went on, I started noticing we had two trails on both sides of the building, and now it's called Mount Sinai. And they were filled with bodies, you know, and then we were running out of body bags. And then I'm on the floor and I'm seeing people every 15 minutes, I could count a body would go by, a body would go by. But then I still was not convinced. I said, there has to be something more. I mean, if this it was so deadly, we, you know, we should be dropping like the Ebola dropping down. But, you know, but I still said I, to the point that I said, well, you know, it must be, to me, I believe it's a diet and the minerals you put in your, in your body and the food, the proper uh, food you put in your body, it helps keep your immune system. And my belief is this, if your body is already a, a well-tuned machine that can um, wore off any type of illness, it depends on how you eat and, and the frame of mind you use. But that's my own concept. But with that concept, I did not experience any symptoms. My family did not perish. Um, 
I was put in a very hazardous condition. And that attack I was forced to, basically. But with my own resourcefulness, I got my own um, PPE, protect, you know, protected wear that we wear for um, airborne and contact precaution um, bacteria and virus. So I was put in this um, isolation unit for men, air vent, they were all on vents because their breathing had to be, they had to pump oxygen into them as well as take away the virus and be filtered throughout this system so it wouldn't go throughout the hospital air, air, air conditioning system. But these men were in so much torment, they would rip their face masks off and now you got those bacteria germs flying all over. And you know, and then the, or, you know, I'm LPN or PCA, patient care attack, same thing. The RNs would refuse. The white women refused to go in there, and there was a, and then one, you know, there's an Asian man in there, and there was a Hispanic man, there's an old white man, and I think someone else, and they were in torment. And then not only in torment, they were filled with feces and urine, and nobody would change it for two shifts. I worked the night shift. What? What is humanity? And see, well, the reason why I took up nursing because I come from Long Island. My mother, mother came to New York City to become a nurse. I come a long history of root woman, whatever healers. That's what we did. And so I'm looking at this condition of people, and I'm looking at these these so-called oh professional people. Oh my God, all these titles are afraid to come in, you know, to take care of these people who are suffering. Okay, and so like I said, I do what I have to do. I go in, I I, I talk to the, my my broken Spanish. I soothe. I could I couldn't control the guy. I soothe him. Explained to as much as he was in delirium. Please keep your mask on. I cleaned them up. Then the next one, and the other one need my patient. The next one, I, I service every one. The last one that really, you know, made it worth my while. This little old Chinese man. I, I don't care. I'm using all the names and the nationalities. I got reprimanded for that. I don't see why. It's not political, right? Because he was an Oriental, and he was so frail, and he was covered with so much with so much junk and feces. Is here. It took me about a whole hour to clean that man up safely. And when he looked at me, and he just put his little, really little hand up with his thumb up, <laughs> you could have gave me a million dollars. Because that was the time I said, okay, I do what I had to do. And I said, you know, if God wanted me to die, then this is it. But it wasn't, and I'm still here, and my family's still here. So that's when I got into the Zip Code Project. I was like amazed, like, wow, people actually, pay. I mean, you, you expect people to die, but the fear, fear is in living. You know, that's life. When you walk out in the street, you don't know if you're going to get shot, killed, raped, kidnapped. You don't know. But you always be vigilant, always on, on point, always be vigilant. Just like down south of my family, my mother's family. You, know, you, you have to look out for the danger and be aware. I guess I'm long-winded. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. No, I like <laughs> long-winded responses. Thank you for the, the details and for your service to these human beings. Oh, my it's God. not a service. It's not a service. We we're it's trust. We work. We're human beings. If you need help, then I'm gonna help you. Like old lady across the street, probably serve some people help. Some people turn their back. I mean, it's what we do. If you if your heart is there, you see, I think what it is. If you're a human being, that these things come automatically. But if you're not a human being, when you're into darkness, things that are anti-human, greed. Oh, for me, selfishness, deceit, that's the killer. Those are the dangers of one. You know, and then a lot of people are filled with it because they're too filled full with themselves. Because, oh, it's so, life is so easy. Everything is given to us. And even, even to the point that that's why we're having trouble as a black, foundational black race. Because 
Some of us on point and some of us are not. Some of us still believe like, oh, everything is okay. We're going to sing Kumbaya. No, we can't leave it by chance. We have to, you know, pull up our sleeves and help each other if it's, if it's necessary. Thank you for that. And I was Sorry. curious, no, I remember in early 2020 when there wasn't a, enough the personal protection equipment. How long did it take you to get the proper equipment? Like I said, I'm very resourceful. I know who gets what and where. And I contacted certain uh, supervisors and people on top in the hospital. So people were hoarding. And like I said, you know, it's like... <laughs> It's like black market. Yes, I know where to get what I need for the people that work with me, and that's what I got. I couldn't say for anybody else, but for for me, because I mean, it's me being resourceful. There's stuff out there, and you just have to if you have to go break into not break into, but go whoever works in the shipping department and go in and get what you need because nobody's gonna bring it to you. Everybody's scared. Everybody's panicked. So I took advantage of this one. I got what I need for my coworkers. Thank you. And so during the pandemic working in the hospital for how how many months did you see all the you said there were a lot of um, people going out in body bags was that for all of 2020 well uh it started 2019 yeah 2020 that's january by time june came by time we got into spring the trucks the trailer for refrigeration trailers were outside Again, working at night, and you know, I really didn't pay much attention because you know, it's a hard job. I tell you, it's not an easy job when you have some of the, like I said, is very racist. Some of the bosses are not liking black folks. I hate to say them, but it's true. And so they give you all the dirty, rotten, grunt work and try to make you quit. So um, I know, you know, I wasn't really paying attention, but then I started seeing the make the makeshift uh, emergency emergency center outside the building, like tents and stuff. I said, okay, something serious is going on. But again, you know, it just it just didn't feel right. I mean, I know people were dying, but then when the quarantine happened, that, you know, I'm like, you know, <laughs> we have so many deadly things out there, but they quarantined the people. Okay, but I didn't mind because, you know, I still had freedom. I had anonymity, you know, more sorry, my autonomy. I would, um, I had my car. And I work at night and I have my badge and I go past the uh, blockades and police set up for people to go through. And so I felt like, you know, right, I could get and do my job. So it, it, again, it didn't affect me being blocked in or uh, in quarantine. Um, my kids, I, I drove, I, you know, had the, the car, we took them out, you know, wherever we went, you know, they uh, took them out. And yeah, so we, it's like the same routine. It's just that they were afraid for me in the hospital. I told them, don't be afraid. But, um, being the when you see bodies go by you in a bag or someone dies, or I have to take them down to the morgue. It's like, you know, it's like um, a car that don't work anymore and you put them on the shelf. And I have a funny story about the, the being locked up in the uh, morgue, but that's, that's another issue still. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you see, after a while, you, it, it, you know, when you work in hospital, it doesn't, I mean, at least for me, you know, you get, you get um, jaded. It doesn't bother you. It's like when you be a war-torn, you work as a soldier, killing, shooting, whatever. After a while, it's like, no big deal. It's like another day. But these things were real, you know. And then my coworkers, we were fierce. I mean, we did what we had to do. You know, we made our little jokes on certain things, but 
waistline come come for us to get assigned to those you know death trap areas, and we had to be stand up like I'm not going in there for this, or it, you know you had to fight for your right. So between fighting to to make sure that you were safe until when you went home, you didn't bring anything home to your family, or fighting to get the the patients the correct treatment they need, and 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 the the, the apathy of certain people like in with high places that they could couldn't care less. The patient live or die, and then don't be a patient of color. <laughs> That's a, forget that. Uh, some more horror stories, but but this is the nature of man. Wow. And you mentioned that you got locked in the morgue. Was that during the pandemic? Oh, no, this is a um, pre-pandemic, just before the pandemic. You know, because I work in postpartum, and if the mother gives birth, she comes over to the uh, post outside where we take care of the baby is in the nursery and the mom but this one particular woman uh she was like 27 black woman i don't know how what happened complication but my co-worker went in so we're like we just got on the shift that night she went in and she called me she said brown i said what she says patient not moving the patient was still warm but the patient was dead i don't know what happened so anyway we notified, they, we did the protocol, and then, you know, they did what they had to do. It was terrible. But anyway, we had to, you know, um, put the body in the, um, wrap the body up, making sure the bags, it wasn't a bag, but it was like a, a, um, a death sheet. I was like, how it's called. Anyway, so I'm going, we're going down there. And this particular um, worker, I wouldn't call him my co-worker. And you get some people who work and some people don't work, but you know, they're, they're not 100% on point. But anyway, we bring the body down to the basement. I go in, but some for some reason, the morgue door was kind of you know shifty. It wasn't really working. So I said, okay, whatever you, we finally get the door open. I said, whatever you do, don't close the door until I get to the other side, because if you had to put the body in the room and you enter the, out the, ex, the other side and put in the information, who was brought in there, et cetera. And it has like uh, like light bulbs. This is like ooh, this is old stuff. It had light bulbs hanging in there, so it like look really cruddy, you know, like old mining camps. So bodies and stuff is in there. So I'm pushing the body in, and before I know it, she closed, she slammed the door. All the lights went out. Now that is a harrowing feeling because you're in there with all these bodies and God knows what. You know, you watch all these monster movies, but that didn't bother me. I think I was pissed for the fact I told her not to close the door. She thought it was funny. And the other side of the door was very hard for me to get. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm trying to get this door. So I mean, finally, I get the door. And that was my harrowing experience of <laughs> the morgue. I don't go anywhere without propping the, ex- the other door before I you know, put something to block the doors from closing. She thought it was funny, but that was another story. That is harrowing. <laughs> Imagine being in the dark. Light bulbs, you see the lights, and light goes out. And you got all these bodies around you. What will you be run through your mind? Oh they come back and get me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you have to get past that too. Otherwise, you'll be, you know, you then you're frozen in fear, and you got you may never come out of there. You know? Right. So, so, you know, so you just after you get out there, you <laughs> hit the ceiling. But that was one of my stories. So in twenty, sorry. No, I said I had a lot of different, but don't, we won't get into that. Oh. <laughs> wow. Then in, in 2021, what was it like working in the hospital? Were there less deaths or did it continue to be the same? Okay, now by the time 2019 to 20, August 2020, 
I was injured. Now, did this on the job. Now, this is a very strange thing. The main elevator in the hospital, I work at night. So I get off at 7.30, and I mean, my co-worker, we're all on from the 12th floor. We go down to the main el- main floor, lobby. So, you know, so I was talking to my coworker. I said, we get to the main floor, bing, the bell, door, door open. I said, hey, you go first. She went first. Before I could step out that door, I woke up between two steel doors. The door had slammed shut on me. And my shoulder was injured. I had had surgery on my shoulder. My uh, neck, the cervical, there's one missing. They want to replace that. I herniated this in my uh, right side. So I've been out on workman comp from November. I had the surgery. So I miss all anything till and after. Because at that time, the pandemic was not residing. But then everything had gotten clean up. You know, we had plenty of equipment, you know. And then they started slowly moving the patient COVID to different floors. And soon we didn't have any more, just about by the time I left. So I don't know what happened afterwards. So I'm still out on workman comps now. That is awful that that happened to you. If I didn't know that, I could have swore my wound to kill me. I, you know, it just don't happen. And the people ripping the door open, oh, I woke up, people, oh, my God, it's your. And I'm like, I was like, not me. If you, I can't explain how to. It's like having the train doors is nothing. Say four widths of train door on both sides. That's the thickness of that steel door. And it hit me such like pop, like a trap. So I don't know whether it was destined for me to be out, which it probably was because if uh, if I hadn't been out and work in combat, I wouldn't be in the zip code project. So I could oh. be working slave anyway. Yeah, because my I had a whole told the mindset now. Oh, I was programmed. Yeah, I was programmed because I was work, work, work. Nineteen years program. Go, 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 go. Do, do, do. Plus full time school and work, and take care of my kids. My daughter's father was a teacher. That's another story. The black foundational African American. Mm-hmm. From his mother's from um uh God oh, I can't think of his Bluefield, Bluefield, South Carolina long history there, but he was murdered uh January uh January no yes January seventeenth something like that in um ninety three my daughter was born ninety one she wasn't quite two yet but anyway he was a t- high school teacher from um Jane Adams. Beautiful brother, coach, took his last money, helped the children, helped the people in the community. And uh, one night we were uh, coming from the, uh, do some, uh, the he like he liked the Trotters. At that time, um, Empire now used to be Trotters Raceway. And anyway, we was coming from upstairs, go down back to, because he lived in the Bronx. So he had to go teach the next day. And before we could get into the um, area where he lived at, about four it was now it was night and it was just slightly snowing. January is cold, and about four, four, five police car light flashed in on us. They came with guns flaring. Say nigga, something that they called out, and I'm the first thing my mind told me. Um, August, so we're having a family argument. To do two, like then he flashed his flashlight on me, and he saw. I guess I was another pastor. And he said, "Oh, he cursed." We're gonna follow you home. So meanwhile, uh, Ernie, he was like, "Yep, yep, yep, yep," because he was like, uh, "He's, you know, he he didn't like the idea, but he was a little intoxicated." I'm just trying to keep him quiet. So anyway, make a long story short, I get him in front of his mother's house, and I take him upstairs and tell um, my mother-in-law that uh, his 
son is here. And my mind told me that when I went down to my car, my mind told me if I leave, that was the last day I was going to see him. So I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. And then I'm, I looked in the rearview mirror and I see there is a police patrol car on the opposite side of the street. So if you go, that's the last time I said, no, he'd be all right. Next morning, school call, uh, where's Mr. Chaplin? He's, uh, he hasn't shown up. I spoke to his mother. We searched, we searched. The man went, met, went missing for three months. Okay, uh, Easter Sunday, my mother-in-law, she's an average uh, church member, Mount Sinai. I mean, um, um, Amy Church. Uh, I can't think of it right now. Anyway, we're coming out of uh, Easter Sunday with the kids and everything. And um, they said, oh, we found um, Bill. Oh, wow, he's missing three years, three months. What happened? They found his body badly decomposed, come out of the river um, where the White Stone Bridge was. He had his pants on, he had his money, he had his gold chain, but he was so badly decomposed. And when we later on, about three or four years ago, my daughter went and did research on the uh, autopsy report. His skull was smashed and he was destroyed. So I believe those white men did that, those policemen. So that's the violence again I'm talking about. You know, that exists as we speak today. So when you, anyway, getting off the topic, but. No, yeah. thank you for sharing that. People need to hear. But how black people are mistreated in this country. So thank you. Wow. It's, it's, yeah, and what makes it so bad is that the Republican, at least the Republicans, you know where they stand, but the Democrat Party, the sneaky one, because the Democrat Party was a fault with slavery back during the time. So they didn't have not changed their feathers. They give you the sweet words or the word salad. Oh, we're going to do something. You're going to do nothing. Abuse you and abuse you. And at will, they will kill you because mm-hmm. this is what they do. If you read the book, 100 Years of Lynching, you'll see all the atrocities they have done to Black people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, wow. So then we met, and during the Zipco Memory Project, were you interviewing people in your neighborhood? Oh, say that again? Uh, so you and I met um, through the Zipco Memory Project. So I was wondering, were you interviewing people in your neighborhood? Um, see, my, they were, they, um, Leah and Eve and uh, Tony, they came up with that idea. My idea was, uh, again, I was using the, the stories I heard and my um, feelings was to interpret it in painting. I don't know why, because I've been painting for, for many, many years. Back, but I, you know, I never go out and show my stuff because it was something personal I did. But for some reason, I was inspired. I think with the postcards, I said, I didn't wasn't too happy with the crayons, but I knew I like to do uh, acrylics and stuff. I took the postcard and took it a step further. I used acrylics and then I put my own words, wisdom, how I felt into those postcards. And then I took it another step further. I got this bright idea, let me paint. <laughs> and I had this idea, I wanted to put something in sense with social justice to make a painting or, or some sort of a collage showing the atrocities that are the things that have happened, people that was unjust, and it affects all the communities. And um, but it turned out to be, you know, it was it was, it was big, but you know, this is how it turned out. It came out to do the small painting because as we start trying to put things together, it got a little more complicated, and certain things they wanted didn't want. So I I had to restrain myself to just to stay within the confinements of what they wanted us to you know to produce. Oh, as far as yeah. as far as talking to people, I you know I tried. I found it was very difficult to 
talk to, I'm going to say the average person, I'm not talking about who in intellectual is in college or you know, knowledge or who are, who's uh, savvy to what's going on. You have a lot of people who are just making day-to-day ends meet and their only concern is survival and how they can you know, can continue to exist in the, in the climate they're living in and, and, can't, and can't seem to find a way out because it seems to be hopeless. So how do you go to a person and tell them, oh, we have a re- imagine repair, we're going to be able to cathedral divine, and half these people don't even go to church. And then when you say cathedral, to them, they see white or, oh, no, this is not for me. And so I get that turned off. So then I try to break it down, and it is even more daunting to them. It's like, well, why are you involved? There's nothing going to happen. You know, this, this defeatist attitude. And even with some, they don't want to be bothered. You know, they just, no, 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 no. So I had mentioned during the beginning of the pro- uh, project that if they wanted to get the people to come and to to experience and and, and share their feelings of the, what happened during the pandemic, you're going to have to you know, go at a different level. I mean, that's conceivably was a beautiful idea, but you need like a street closed off with this music and this food because that's what people, you know, average people. I say average, right? you know, I don't try not to belittle anybody, but just the regular local people who work every day, the hot dog man, the lady working the laundromat, the, the, the like, house attendant. I mean, the people who just don't work at all. You know, they used to just, you know, street street fairs. Or, and, that, and then through that, you can communicate with them. But you come up, I mean, it's a beautiful idea, but you're not getting the whole population. And that's what I was trying to tell them in the meeting, the Zoom meeting we had, it's like, okay, you want to continue this, but you can't continue this on this, this level up there because you're not going to get that many participants. And then to, to train someone to reproduce what we did, it's a, it's, a, it's a lofty idea. But how do you break it down to the average person who don't want, who don't want no part of, be part of it? Now, they just want to exist. How do, you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you get this information about social justice to them when they don't see no social justice? You see? That's a challenge. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, so for people who are listening, the Zipka Memory Project, we had an exhibition at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is at 1047 Amsterdam Avenue. And you're right, it was in this beautiful cathedral, but right, I'm not Catholic, but I went, but I can understand how some people who may not want, who just may not want to engage in a religious space wouldn't go. Um, yeah, yeah, but the cathedral, the cathedral is not, a, has no domination. It's not Catholic. It, you oh. Know, it's, it has no, yeah, really, it's just for, oh, it's like a non-dominational church. Okay. So everything is in, that's why you could have the uh, Orishas in there, you know, the, the Yoruba uh, religion in there. They didn't mind it because it's non-dominational. But it's just the point that you're on the West side. Mm-hmm. Economically, it's already there. So these people who are down on 116th Street, East Side, Projects, the Polo Grounds, Brooklyn, you know, I mean, I can't even name all the areas. South Side, uh, Jamaica, Queens, all the people living in, in Rosedale who live in a nice, beautiful home. I don't know why I should come out there for what? It's not even across their mind. There's no interest. If so, there's a pandemic. Oh well, this is see, this is the general feeling of the people. They've been so, uh, how do you say, so beat down, and they, I mean, you've been locked down, and then now you. I mean, it's it's. 
being conditioned, and this is a Pav- Pavlovian um, exercise, what they did to people. Lock the people up, and then you can program them. That's basically what that is. You do that in any country. You take over a country. You lock the people down. You give them very little to eat. You control them. And this is what they did. They got to the point now people are scared. Oh, we put up anything now. Oh, this is monkey virus. Now everybody's flying all around. Fear. You're making fear. There's nothing to fear, but they make it so. The, the, the news media is not even a news media. They, they rip their title off. They don't write anything fit to print. They they contrive, they mislead people, they give half information, half truth, and the people going around and around the circle, and they're being duped and being used. And now what they're doing now, there's a world organization with all the corporation is trying to uh, make it a, a world health organization where they control the what a vaccine you have to have and mandate and all this follow you. And the country Africa and a lot of the other countries refuse to sign it. But America and Ukraine and and uh, the King, United Kingdom are ready for that. Why? Because, the, again, the slave, slave masters who went and conquered all the land are trying to conquer and control the people. They control you with the food that's no good. They control you with pharmaceuticals that are killing the people because unless they have proper diet, that's why you get illness. But they don't look at it that way. You know, a lot of black uh, brothers from Africa have inventions to, to make water. They kill the man. Up here in the United States, the man had uh, invention to, you didn't need fuel to uh, drive your car. <laughs> it, it burned his whole place down, and he was an ex-policeman. So this is constant, you know, attacking people and controlling. So no matter what we do in this society, unless we get it from the source, which is very difficult because they infiltrate, they infiltrate the government, they infiltrate the police department to keep the people suppressed, they infiltrate the so-called our colored or look like black people in the White House are only for themselves. They sell us out for what they want. And that's what they that's why they're in there. Otherwise the white man would have them in there. So what do we have? How can we tell people social justice? You know, Thank that's you. what I want to fight. Social yeah. Thank you for that reminder. And I feel thank you. I'm so glad that I was able to hear your story, especially as a nurse. No, thank you. No, I said thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm just like, oh, okay, I, I, okay. I, get, I get so passionate. That's why I had that radio show on Popular Story because I see people be, oh, let's not go there. Let's go on and on and on because it's got to be a reason. I, what is the purpose of living? You to live in this condition. No, you, you're afraid to go outside. Your kids go to school, you get killed. You walk out of the park, you get raped. Come on. Mm. No, I'm glad you brought up purpose, right? I thought that's how I felt during the pandemic, all these people dying. What am I doing? So that's, I started this project, this oral history project, just so we could remember what our lives were like and that our history isn't erased because so so many people today don't know about the history of lynchings in America. It's like the land that was stolen from us. And as you said, we are foundational Americans. So I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your experiences. It's it's really important. Thank you. You know, um, it's it's sad, but oh, how can I say? This is this is the people need to know, but the people are afraid to know because they've been shamed. Black folks have been shamed. Oh, why you want to push the boat when you got other people? That's see, they shame us because we're we're loving, we're good-hearted people. And they take advantage of that. That's the evil. 
They don't like goodness because we we all you know we we share. We don't we don't you know we come from a country that food is there and eat and swing. We make music and clothes. We're colorful. We live. No matter how harsh the situation, we still have a good time. These you know so-called uh, superior people. They live in harsh countries that fight, kill each other for their own scrap of bread. They're used to doing it. So they're going to impose it on it. And they want to continue to manifest this situation as long as they have the people, the police people behind them, who go, when you kill a black person, you don't get, you don't get any impunity, justice. You know, it, it has to get, but this system's got to break. It's not going to last. It's got to break because now people are starting to wake up. And the more we talk about this, the more we get, we have to get in a community and we have to talk with the real deal. And no matter whether they don't want to listen to it now, they have to be beating over head over and over till they realize you are in danger and you must wake up and protect yourself and take your country back. We built this country. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go anywhere. They are the foreigners. They are the immigrants in, this country, in our country that we built from scratch. They, we made the light. We made the, the stop sign. We made everything, every invention. Black man made it. They cannot live without. They, treat, they copy our style. They want to blow up their lips, bring up their butt. Looks like black people, oh, don't be black. You see what I'm saying? Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, so I want to thank you for your time. It's almost 10, so okay, I will. Yeah, yeah. And I really appreciate you. No, no, you didn't. It was great. And my goal is to have a, a gathering once I've once I've compiled all the, the audio, my goal is to reach 100 and then to reach out to museums. So ideally in the future, we can all come together in person and, and meet. So I look forward to, okay. to having a gathering in person and I, I really thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for letting me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I went off the, with your questions, but you know. No, no, it's an um, honor. I love hearing people share their experiences. So thank you. Every voice matters. That's so thank you. Sorry okay, about that. Thank you, Sonia. And right. I'll be in touch. Have a great day you today. Too. You too, my dear. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my conversation on this episode of Black America and COVID, an oral history project. If you enjoyed the episode, then please give it five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. The more five stars the podcast has, the more visible it is, the more access I have to people who would like to share their story living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you are a Black American and you would like to share your experience with me, then email me at soniakilleru at gmail.com. The email is in the show notes of the podcast. Or direct message me through my Instagram account, Black America and COVID, all one word, all lowercase. If you are a non-Black American and you would like to memorialize the life of a Black American sadly lost, During the COVID-19 pandemic, then email me as well. This episode was written, produced, and audio engineered by me, Sonia Jean Killebrew, podcast host and executive producer. Thanks for listening to my oral history project, Black America and COVID.